0: We're taking our Bibles and you're going to join me while the kids are taking off. Would you join me in the book of James and then in 1 Kings? We're jumping two different spots. Old Testament, New Testament. The book of James, we're going to start there and then we're headed all the way towards the Old Testament to the book of 1 Kings chapter 17. While you're turning, they have notes for you that you can look at and uh, if they are in the bulletin but also they're available for you to ask the usher by just raising your hand and follow along a little bit better as we go through. We're starting a series this next few weeks that we want to look at a prophet that we haven't done a series in this church for 12 years is the last time that we ever explored his life according to my notes and so I want to take a little bit of time and talk about him but let me start with this you've heard of the Peace Corps yes? Okay, The United States has that Peace Corps organization that young people can volunteer and they can go and spend a year or two or, and work in some foreign land and help out with education and different things like that. There's uh, some that go down into the Amazon jungle and they have a Peace Corps manual and one of the manuals that talks about what to do as far as practical things of what happens if you're ministering and you're working in the Peace Corps down in the Amazon area. And there's one chapter that goes like this, what to do if attacked by an anaconda snake. Okay? Anaconda snakes can grow to be 30 feet. We all understand there's the second second largest type of snake in the world. And this manual strikes me. It's interesting what they have suggested when they've written down the 10 things to keep in mind if you encounter an anaconda snake. Okay? Here are the 10 items. Number one, do not run as the the snake is faster than you are. You want to bet? Okay, if you run into that? (laughs) Number two, immediately lie flat on the ground. Put your arms tight against your sides and your legs tight against one another. Number three, tuck in your chin. Number four, the anaconda will come and begin to nudge and climb over your body. Number five, after the snake has examined you it will begin to swallow you from the feet and from the feet end always the feet end first permit the snake to swallow your feet and ankles number 6 6 the snake will work its way to your legs this will take a long time <laughs> number 7 do not panic <laughs> Whoever wrote this. Okay. (laughs) Number eight. When the snake has swallowed you to the knees, slowly with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, and gently slide it into the side of the snake's mouth between the edge of its mouth and your leg. Then suddenly rip upwards, cutting the snake's head and ending its life. (laughs) Number nine and ten... Be sure your knife is with you at all times. <laughs> Number 10. Be sure your knife is sharp. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is not a way to get volunteers to, to sign up for this, right? If you read this manual, first of all, would you sign up for the Amazon? I think not. I think not. Now listen, we're going to study a life of a fella who he got involved with two huge monstrous spiritual snakes. The snakes are Ahab and Jezebel. You ever hear of them? They are the anacondas of the Old Testament. They are horrible people. And Elijah gets involved with them. Now you might sit there and say, well Elijah must have been a superhero. He must have been a Marvel comic character. He must have been somebody from out of this world. Actually he's not. Actually if you study the life of him, what we're going to do is over the next week study it. But we want to start with this thought that Elijah was really a lot like you and me we read in the book of James, we get an idea of what he is like. Go to James chapter 5. James 5, as we begin this study, it talks about him and it describes him as just an ordinary type of a guy. In James, this is the passage that's talking about prayer, how important prayer is. And as he's making comment, he's saying in verse 16, he's saying, confess your faults one to another, pray for one another. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now look at verse 17. Elias, or Elijah, was a man to to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three and a half years. The phrase here that's really interesting is, he is subject to like passions as we are. Can I I help you to understand it a little bit better by looking at a couple different translations? In the NIV it says this, he was a man just like us. In the amplified version, or in the ESV it says he was a man with a nature like ours. In the amplified version it says Elijah was a human being with a nature such as we have with feelings, affections, and constitution just like you and me. He had battles, he had struggles, he had difficulties, he had family issues, he had family non-issues. He was just like you. And yet he is an individual that God uses in a really, really amazing way. Now back in chapter 17 of 1 Kings we are introduced to him. There is no background information in 1 Kings chapter 17 other than it just opens up the story and says, oh by the way here comes Elijah. And it tells us about Elijah by very simple means. It just says without any background information, Elijah the Tishbite who is of the inhabitants of Gilead said unto King Ahab as the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain for these years, three and a half years, but according to my word. Now we only know little bits about him, but this much we know, he is an individual who comes from the area, he's a tishbite who comes from the area of Gilead. What we know about Gilead at that time, at that time of the the history of the Bible, that it was in a rugged mountain region. Most of the people there were shepherds. That there was no commercial center there. They were they lived in lived in crude domestic type of homes that were made out of stone, some wood. And so there was no major city there. Gilead was not one of these, you know, on the main route, and there all of a sudden you build a Hershey and you have all kinds of you know social things to get people involved in. It wasn't. It was just a plain little town that's on the outskirts, or a region that's the outskirts. We know that Elijah is described in 2 Kings. 1. We know that he's described this way as a hairy man girded with a girdle of leather. Literally what that means that in the Hebrew it says he's the Lord of hair. <laughs> now I don't know what that all means. I, I, you know, I'm envious of him. <laughs> they, he must have had long hair. You know, the garment that he wears is probably similar to the garment that John the Baptist wears later on. But there's nothing outstanding about this guy that would say, okay, he comes from a high-class social family, probably not. He's very cultured, probably not. He probably didn't fit into what we would call high society. When you say, well, what about the town of Tishbe? We, you know, he's in Tishbite. We don't know anything about it. There's very little about it other than this reference. It's an unknown town, an un- unrenowned town. And so he's a normal type of a person coming from a normal background who is used in an extraordinarily unusual way. And he is an individual that doesn't have class or social status that automatically puts him into the realm of he's going to be used of God. He's just like you. He's just like me. He doesn't have all this background. But what he does is amazing. He's a nobody who becomes a tremendous somebody in Scripture. In fact, if you go with me and just think through this, he becomes one of the most outstanding people in the Bible. He in the New Testament is the prophet most often mentioned above any other prophet by Jesus Christ and the others in the New Testament. He is—he um, becomes the epitome. The standard for preachers, in Malachi it's saying how the one who's going to come before Jesus Christ and he's going to be the voice in the wilderness will be an Elijah. He's the, he stands out as the Elijah, the epitome of the prophets even in the end times in the book of Revelation. He is one of two people in the Bible that never ever faced death. Do you remember who the other one was? Enoch, right, Enoch from the book of Genesis. And Enoch was all of a sudden he was suddenly taken. Elijah is taken up in that chariot of fire, or that whirlwind of fire, and he is also the character next to Moses, who is considered the grace of the prophets. They too appear next to Jesus in the garden of of, of the garden where he's transfigured. So he's an imp- becomes a really important figure. He becomes a superhero in time when it comes to spiritual abilities, but he starts off as a nobody. He starts off like you and me. And he comes into a region and he makes a big difference. Now to understand the big difference and what he does you have to understand the background. You have to understand the times in which he approached. So for a few moments let's look at chapter 16. In chapter 16 of 1 Kings, we get a little bit of glimpse of what the times were like and what he is ministering into. Now remember, here's the setting. We just finished a series on the book of Judges a few weeks ago. After the book of Judges, Samuel wraps it all up with 40 years of serving as a high priest. When Samuel finishes up his duties, he has anointed a new king by the name of Saul. But Saul has become a terrible king, so Samuel before he dies anoints the successor, David. And David then in time succeeds Saul and becomes the new king of Israel and reigns for 40 years. After David reigns for 40 years, remember who succeeds David? His son Solomon, right? And Solomon known as the wisest man who ever lived, he reigns for 40 years. At the end of Solomon's reign, and by the way, David and Solomon, this is considered the golden years of Israel's history. Things went well for both of them. They had their ups and downs, but for the most part, the nation did very, very well. When Solomon passes away, he he says that the crown will go to his son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam then takes charge, but Rehoboam is a young man who is not wise. He raises the taxes. He is going to assert his authority. Probably was an insecure person that is going to try to take control and the people rebelled. They were ripe for rebellion. And so ten of the tribes or the states, the northerners formed their own confederacy this time. They break off from Rehoboam and David's family and they form their own nation. They take the name Israel. The two southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah remain loyal to David's household, to his descendants. They take the name Judah. And I, I, I said, um, yeah, Benjamin and Judah. They take, the, they take the name of the bigger tribe Judah and these are the names that they are used for the next couple hundred years in their history. The, the story where we get Elijah is in the northern part. He's going to work with the ten northern tribes and they are not doing well. In fact, they, after Jeroboam, who has been the first to lead in this confederacy, there's his son, and then there's another son, and then we come to his fellow, the names of his, his second successor is Baasha. Baasha becomes to the throne. His story is starting to be told. You can see it in in, uh, 16th chapter of 1 Kings. It starts talking about Baasha. It tells us about who he is and that he's a wicked king. That he's not doing a great job. And what happens is his son succeeds him to the throne but the people want to get rid of this family, this dynasty. So when Elah is drunk one of the servants, one of the generals comes in and kills him. The general is named Zimri. He comes in and kills the king and assumes that he is now the king. Now when the news goes out across the land that Zimri, the general, has killed the king and taken over, another general doesn't like that. He doesn't want Zimri to be the king, and so he forms an army and starts marching against the capital. When he is marching against the capital, you read about it, that he gets, within the, he gets to the capital within a week of Zimri taking control, and Zimri realizes his days are numbered so he sets fire to the palace and he kills himself within the fire of the palace. And now Amri who has led those troops against Zimri, Amri becomes the new leader. Amri is a wicked man. In fact we get a little bit of tidbit of information if you go down and you read in verse 25 of chapter 16 Amri wrought what does your Bible say? He wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did what? He did worse than who? Than all the kings before him. So this is getting close to Elijah's time. And Amri has come to the throne and Amri is the worst, the most evil king of all the kings. Now you understand, when they formed this confederacy just a couple generations before, they've made their own new religious capital. They weren't going to go to Jerusalem. The, the the ones who rebelled against Solomon's son said, if we let the people go down to Jerusalem every year for feast, they'll start becoming, you know, affected and they'll start wanting to go back to joining up with Judah. We can't let that. So they made their new capital, they made their new set of priests. And so there's been this this evolve evolution of new religion and false religion and incorporating some some of the Baal worship with some of the Jehovah worship for the last two generations. Amri comes on the throne and he's going to just intensify everything. He's going to make it into high gear. He's going to just make it explode. And then after Amri, he's succeeded by his son Ahab. Now this is not the guy who goes after Moby Dick. This is a totally different character. That's fictional. This is real. This Ahab succeeds his dad and I want you to catch something about this guy. Look at chapter 16 verse 30. It says and Ahab the son of Amri did what? Evil in the sight of the Lord. How bad? Above all that were. So now, you know, now we got evil on steroids. Because it's getting worse. The, these two kings have just—they have just exploded the evil that's going through the land. To, to give you an idea of what's going on. Just to give you a sense of it, how wicked this is. It's stated in this chapter, just to give you a little bit of background information, it talks about how evil he was, and then it gives you an illustration. Verse 31. It came to pass, if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of you know, Jeroboam two generations before, that he took to wife Jezebel, we'll come back to that, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So he isn't even considering Jehovah whatsoever. He's just totally totally discarded Jehovah worship. Go on a little bit. He reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal and he had built it that which he had built in Samaria. So he then makes Samaria the capital city. The new center of worship is a Baal center even though they're Jewish. Baal has become their god. Go down a little bit further. He made a grove and that is the idea that what he did is they made other pagan centers where there was trees and they could get the prophetesses, could hear visions from Ashtaroth, who was the the god wife of Baal, and Baal and and Ashtaroth would get together every spring, and then that would replenish the entire earth when they would copulate, and what would happen is the rains would come as a result of those two getting together, these two gods getting together, that would create the rain. And so there's these pagan religious centers where people would worship, especially in the springtime, so that the rains would come. But then it goes on and tells a little bit more of what he's doing. It says, in his days did Hiel, the Bethlehemite, he built or rebuilt Jericho. You've got to remember that when Joshua destroyed Jericho, he put a curse on it and said, never, ever, ever should this be rebuilt. But now under Ahab they rebuild Jericho and they're making it a center for commerce once again. Though God had said, never rebuild it. These people could care less. They're rebuilding it. Then he says in the text, they married Jezebel. Jezebel literally means she's the princess of Baal. That's her name. And so she's a Baal worshiper. Now we had seen under Solomon they had been warned, if you marry pagan wives they will bring in pagan religion but this is different. Jezebel makes it the state religion. She's not just there doing her own thing. She is declaring everybody does her thing. And we know that she's this wicked woman because she not only promotes Baal worship, but in the New Testament, remember the book of Revelation? She is the character that personifies evil. I mean, how many people do you know are called Jezebel? One of those names that we don't, because of her, the connotation of the name, she is one of, if not the most wicked woman of the Old Testament. That's his wife, okay? And you say, well, Ahab would have kept her in control. Folk, she wore the royal pants in that household. We'll see that as the story unfolds. I mean, they, things get really, really bad. For those who want to worship God, man, if you're living in northern Israel at this point, this is terrible. It is terrible. Most all the citizens, as you will see the story unfold, most everyone now turns to Baal worship. By the time that Elijah is ministering after three and a half years, he learns from the mouth of God there's only 7,000 believers in Jehovah in all of northern Israel. Amongst the hundreds of thousands of people, only 7,000 left. This is how bad it gets. In fact, all of the prophets of God who are there, the teachers, the preachers, who tried to stay there and minister, they end up going into hiding. None of them are left out in the open. The, uh, the church of the Old Testament has gone underground big time. In fact, we read that the altar of Jehovah is in total disrepair. When, when, uh, Je- when Elijah's going to have his contest with Baal that we'll see in a couple weeks, he has to rebuild because it says the altar of Jehovah is torn down. There's, they're trying to get rid of all remembrance of Jehovah whatsoever. And the prophets of Baal, they grow into great numbers. They're in charge. And it comes to a point where Elijah, Elijah says, I'm the only one. I feel like I haven't even met any of the other 7,000. We are so scarce. That's how bad it gets. Now I've mentioned that, it, that they rebuilt and That leads me to verse 34 to try to explain a little bit. In his days did Hiel the Bethlehemite build Jericho or rebuild it. Here's the phrase that throws me. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram his firstborn and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub according to the word of the Lord by which he spake by Joshua the son of Nun. He's referring to the curse that Joshua made in chapter 6, verse 26 of the book of Joshua, that if anybody builds this, they and their family will die. Okay, so what exactly is happening in verse 34? Is it the possibility that as Heil, the architect, the general contractor, was rebuilding, that his two sons died because of the curse of God? And he is burying them there because God's punishment is upon them for disobeying God's word. That is one interpretation of this passage. In fact, Josephus makes the comment, who is a historian, for those you who don't know, he's a Jewish historian that lived close to the time of Christ. He gives the, the thought that when Elijah comes and speaks to King Ahab, they are at the uh, funeral of Hile's sons. So that could be the case. That is a possibility that what this reference is is that God's curse is coming down, that evil has gone far enough, and God is opposing it. Or, there's the other possibility that what they did in Canaanite worship is they had foundation sacrifices. Foundation sacrifices was similar to like offering your children as babies. But what they could do, and there's records that the Canaanites did this, if you were building a house or building something in town and you wanted to be blessed by your God, you would bury your child, your living child within that type of structure. And that was to show that this is dedicated to your God, that you would even put your child in there. Is that what Hiel is doing? When they're laying the foundation, did he sacrifice his oldest son? And when they laid the gates, did he sacrifice his second son to Baal worship? That's a possibility. Either one brings us to this point, that this is really bad. Israel has reached the epitome, or should we say they have reached the depths of depths of evil. They have turned totally from the Lord. They are living in a non-God society. They are living in a world that doesn't want to hear about Jehovah. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine living in a society that's turning against their God? You Aren't we blessed? I say that sarcastically. Do we see this happening in our world today? That people are turning away and are we at times amazed at evil being called good and the depths of depravity and morality that 20 years ago we say it'll never get that bad and we go today and we go my word it's so flagrant and open as far as the sin and the immorality and people aren't even shocked anymore and when you say well God is opposed to this you're a hater right we're living in those days That is the time period that God is going to send Elijah into. Now, I want you to understand something. God was not at a loss because of the evil of the day. we got to think this through because this applies to us. When all of a sudden there's such a surge of evil, sometimes we think, well, you know, where is God? Did God know this was going to happen? Does God know that we're going to hit the 2000s and gay marriage is going to be the law? Did God know that there was going to be the killing of millions by abortion? Yes, he did. Okay, is God caught off guard or is God all of a sudden say, sitting back in heaven and going, oh my word, I never thought it would get this bad. I've got to come up with a new plan. That's not the case. Our God doesn't have to make alternative plans as evil arises. Our God already has a plan Our God knew what was going to happen in Elijah's day, and He had prepared Elijah for it. You know what that means? Our God knew what society we were going to live in. God knew exactly what it was going to be like in 2018, 2019, as He tarries. And He has prepared you and me to be able to deal with this world and present the gospel in this time. God is not caught off guard. In fact, should we make this this thought that is so pressing? Perilous times are times of unparalleled opportunity to share the word. Because in the deepest of darkness, the brighter the light can shine. So you and I should not be intimidated by society. We should not be, you know, frozen and paralyzed by the evil that's going on around us. We should let our light so shine and make a difference for the glory of God. God is not dead. He's alive. We need to remember that day by day. Well that's where it brings us to this verse. verse, That in the New Testament we are told redeeming the time uh, because the days are evil. In other words we don't give up because the days are evil. We take advantage of the opportunities. We could phrase it this way. Making the most of our days. Not just saying oh well they don't want to hear the gospel anymore we just quit. No, 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 no. This is an opportunity. Let's minister. Let's try to get the word out. And God sends Elijah into a world that is even more corrupt than our world, that has turned to more paganism, that has turned anti-Jehovah, and Elijah attempts for God and God uses him. It, it's <laughs> Elijah re- reminds me of a, of a fabled story. There's this billionaire businessman. You've probably heard this before. This billionaire businessman is so proud of all of his wealth, and he moves into Arizona. He buys this huge ranch there of 1,500 acres, and he's, he's going to build he built his house and his pool and all his, his cattle, and he's going to bring some of his co-workers and others that have worked in his office staff, and he's going to let them be the first to see all that he has and so he flies everybody in, they arrive, he has the, the shuttles and the doom buggies and the buses and takes them through the tour, shows them everything and everybody's ooing and awing at his success and all that he possesses and he brings them back to the house and he's going to give them this massive fancy lunch and as they're walking towards the house there's this fabulous swimming pool. But the swimming pool is filled full of alligators. And the man turns to everybody and they're asking what is going on He says, anybody want to take a swim? You know, and everybody laughs, ha, 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 ha. What are you doing? Okay. Has your money made you go mad? And he responds says, no, I think the most important characteristic in a person's life is courage. And, I, and courage made me the man I was. And I want to know if any of you are courageous. So here's what I offer you. If any of you jump in the pool and swim all the way across and get out again, I will give you whatever you ask for. With, you know, with what I possess, you can have anything. Because I think courage is the most important thing. Anybody want to go? Everybody kind of laughs that laugh like, are you nuts? And they all turn and start walking away and all of a sudden they heard a splash. And they look and there's a guy at that end of the pool and he is swimming for everything he is worth. He's thrown up in the air by the gators. He swims under. He swims around him. And he finally gets out at this end. He's huffing. He's puffing. And he's scratched up. But he survived. The billionaire goes up, shakes his hand. He says, I've never seen such courage. He says, you can have. I'll keep my word. Whatever you ask. He says, I don't care about fame. I don't care about riches. All I want to know is who pushed me in. Okay. <laughs> you know, in Elijah's case, Elijah was not pushed in. Elijah jumps into the waters with those, with those anaconda gators. And he serves God. And he's like us. That's the point. He is subject to passion. He's just like you. And God used him in the darkest of days. And he made a difference. If God can use an Elijah, he can use you. He can use me if we're willing. Now, what is it exactly about Elijah that made him so usable to God? You want to see it? It's all in verse 1 of chapter 17. In that simple statement where it says he comes on the scene and he approaches Ahab and says to Ahab, Ahab enough is enough. Here's what we learned that Elijah had that made him so usable to God. It's very simple. Number one, he had conviction that God was real. He had conviction that God was real. Look at what it says. It says in this passage he, the comment, as the Lord God of Israel, what's your next word? He lives as the Lord God of Israel lives. Unlike anybody else in this court, unlike anybody else that that is pandering to Ahab, here comes Elijah walking in wherever they're meeting, comes in, he says, God is alive and well. God is present. In fact, he says, my God is so real, he is still the sovereign of Israel. He's the God of the ten tribes, not Baal, as the Lord God of Israel he is the one. Whether they want to admit it or not, he's the creator. Whether they want to admit it or not, he's the judge. Whether they want to admit it or not, they're going to answer to him one day. That's what Elijah is saying. That's what Elijah believes. He believes his God is alive. He believes his God is omnipotent. He believes his God is the, you know, the almighty to whom they're going to give answer. He believes his God is still powerful in a land where people don't believe where people don't want to believe in him, that they want to just write him off. He believes, my God can stop the rain. My God can disrupt nature. My God can change things from their normal sequence. God can still do miracles. This is what he believes. He believes his God is present and powerful. That's what starts his task of being usable. Do you believe the same thing? Do you believe that God is so powerful, then why do you worry about your needs being met? Do you believe God is still around and holy and just, then why would you use his name in vain? You believe that this God that we are here to think about and to worship this morning, that he is almighty, that he is is unspotted, then when we worshipped, why would you have been distracted by your cell phone or something else and not worship him? why would something else take precedent when he has said, this is the time set aside for me? If you really believe that he is able to forgive you of your sins and he is offended by them, then why haven't you confessed sin this week? If you really believe that God is the judge, that one day you're going to stand before him, then why would you not Deal with getting your sins forgiven now instead of risking standing before Him at judgment day having ignored Him. Having just neglected Him. You do realize that every one of us will give account to God. We are going to answer to Him. There's going to be different judgments, those for the believers and those who are unbelievers, but the fact is we are all going to stand before Him one day. And if we believe that, should that not make a difference in how we live? If you believe that God hates sin, if you believe that God has an eternal heaven, then why wouldn't you want him to forgive you of your sins, give you eternal life so you can live with him forever? Why would you reject his son's sacrifice on your behalf if you believe that he is so amazing and so mighty. Those of you who have called upon Christ and you say, He is the Lord. I I, I believe He is the Lord. Then why don't you do His commands? Then why don't you teach your family that His commands are more important than our desires? That we honor Him, that we please Him. If we believe that this God, who is so amazing and so powerful, has written us His personal words why wouldn't we read them more? Elijah believed this stuff. Elijah believed that God is in control and he wanted to be, in contro- be controlled by this God. So, first step in Elijah's life, being used by God, he had the conviction that God was real. There is something else. There is something else in Elijah's life. He was serious about the God-given responsibilities. He took this very seriously. He realized that as a believer in Jehovah God, God had given him responsibilities. How do I know that? Look at what he says. It says, Elijah the Tishbite, who was one of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives, what's the next phrase? Before whom I stand. Do you have anything different? the wording there is amazing. The wording is before whom I worship. Before whom I honor. It's the idea I am waiting by his side at the table for him to tell me what to do. It's the concept of being totally yielded. It's not the idea of just standing here or sitting here physically. It's a spiritual idea that he is in control. I will do whatever responsibilities or duties he has given to me. And he believed this. He believed that one of the responsibilities that he had was to present or represent God to these people who were trying to neglect and forget God. And he says, the God that I am representing, whom I worship, I want to remind you about him. You who used to claim Jehovah as your God, I want to remind you, he still is God. And I'm here to be his mouthpiece. I'm here to be his spokesman. I'm here to represent him and present him to you. Even in this palace where he's talking to Ahab, think about this. He talks about the Lord God of Israel. None of them believe in the Lord God of Israel. None of them think that God is in charge. They think Baal is in charge. And Elijah stands up boldly bravely, confidently, because he believes this this God is real. And it's his job to represent this God here on this earth. And he stands there and declares that God is alive before lots of people. He stands there and declares that God is alive before a crowd that is not pro-Jehovah. He stands there and declares that God is alive in dark, dangerous times. Remember, at this time, the prophets of Jehovah have gone into hiding. There's persecution but he believes this is what God would have him to do. God would have me to speak up, to say something, to represent God to the king and I'm going to give him a very unpopular message. It's not going to rain for three and a half years. In other words, the economy is going south. You're not going to have any crops. In three and a half years, you're going to be in desperate conditions. in Desperate straits. And I believe this is going to happen and I'm telling you, in essence, you need to get right with the Lord. You need to make some changes. Ahab, you have blown it. And God is going to be the judge. Now, an unpopular message, but He is presenting this. Can I ask the simple question? God has given you and me responsibilities. Do you take them and I take them seriously? Such as, do you really represent God to your kids? Are you giving God training? Are you trying to invest in your kids the mindset that they need to know that the most important things in life are not finances? They're important. But finances are not the most important thing to get in this world. The most important thing to get into this world is God's approval by the way you live. Are you you presenting Christ to your friends and neighbors? Are you displaying Christ by how you talk in your backyard? By how you treat others that live around you that might bug you. By how you respond at work. Do they look and say, you're a Christian? The group that went up to Boston. It was interesting that I was being told that while you young adults were up there in Boston, that one of the people made comment to one of the young ladies, says, you must be Christians. They're in this group of, I understand, at the fireworks, hundreds of people They said, you guys must be Christians. Well, we are, but why would you say that? Well, You you don't use the language other people use. You aren't carousing like other people carouse. You're showing a politeness. You're showing an interest in others. You don't come across as real selfish individuals. Does the world see a difference? They're supposed to do they in your life. Hey, you and I have a responsibility to be training the younger Christians. Are you doing it? Well, I've given my years, I I, I don't need to be teaching anymore. Well, if everybody says that, who's going to teach the kids? Who's going to teach the younger ones? We will have a generation coming up of illiterates unless others who are mature teach the word of God or we're going to have an illiterate church when it comes to spiritual truth. That's a responsibility we have. Are you one who says, I take this this seriously about trying to help struggling Christians? I know the Word of God says that if we see a brother fallen, we're supposed to try to restore them. Not bury them, not condemn them, but restore them. That's your responsibility and mine. When's the last time you gave out a tract? When's the last time you invited somebody to come to the worship service? What about those kids that live in your neighborhood? Have you even thought about them hearing the gospel this week to be coming to Bible school? Maybe you're the Elijah to present the word of God to them so they can get, get here, hear the word of God, get born again, their family get saved, and a whole major impact for maybe generations taking seriously God-given responsibility. Remember, God uses us in dark hours. God isn't weakened by the evil. God is still there wanting to work through us and in us. Number three, he's confident in God's resources. Confident in God's resources. By By that, I mean this. He says, There shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Okay? Where, where does he, what's he saying? What's he doing? Well, what happens is what he's relaying and showing us is he believes in God's word. He believes in what God has said. If you and I were to take the time, and I'm going to put it on the board because it's the sake of time, if we were to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 11, we would read these words that God gave to Moses several generations ago. Take heed to yourself, Jews, that your heart be not deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. This is what God God had said. Now remember, Elijah is coming to people like Ahab who have turned aside and served other gods. What was the warning in this text? What did God say would happen to those who would turn aside, those Jewish uh, communities? Then the Lord's wrath would be kindled against you and he would shut up the heavens that there be no rain. And so all of a sudden Elijah sees this verse, comes and says you guys have disobeyed, you have gone against the Lord, here's what God says is going to happen to you as the ten tribes of Israel. You're not going to get any rain. God's going to shut up the heavens. I am praying and asking God to carry out His word. I believe God's word is true. God has declared a judgment on those Jewish communities who would turn to other gods and I'm simply telling you here's what God said. God has laid out the warning. I'm telling you God's word. He's relying on God's word. He's relying on the statements by God. The curses, the blessings, he's declaring them. He totally believed in the resource of God's word. Now you and I have to pause and say wait a minute. Do we have that same confidence? Well his went even beyond the word of God. He prayed. We already read that. We read in James chapter 5 that he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it didn't rain for three and a half years. You know what this all is? Put these two things together. He is coming to the king saying it's not going to rain from here on until, until God tells me to tell you it's going to rain again. That means he's had to have read this before he comes to the king. It also means he's had to been praying before he came to the king. He, to give this message, he's had to been praying about it, reading the word, and sharing and, and thinking about it, so by the time he comes to the king, he can say with confidence, I believe God's word, I believe God is answering the prayer that I've already prayed. You're not going to see it rain. And that rain was so critical because they're an agrarian or a farm community. So he's acting upon God's word, he's acting upon his prayer life. And you and I have to pause and say, okay, Do I believe God's word that is written to me? Do I really believe the promise, the good ones that say, lo, I am with you always? If I believe it, then why do I fret? Do I really believe be sure your sin will find you out? Do I really believe that curse by God to the point that I don't harbor sin? Do you and I really believe the fact that if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we really believe we act upon it. We make confession. We overcome the sins in our life by calling upon him and asking him. Do we really believe in prayer? Well that's proven out by whether you prayed. Do we really believe that God will supply our needs as he has promised? Do we really believe that through the power of Christ I can overcome my attitude struggles? And in the context, it's talking about be learning to become content, to become thankful and not critical. Do you really believe God can help you to change personality? Do you really believe when he says he is not mocked You will reap what you sow. Then it should impact what we sow. Do you really believe in prayer? Oh yeah, everybody's here going to stand and say, oh yeah, I believe in prayer if I asked you to raise your hand. And I would too. I'd say, yeah, I believe in prayer. But then the question comes, do we actually pray? Do we set aside time to really, do we pray for the needs of other people sincerely? Do we really periodically take time to fast? Do we in our lives, when a trial, when a trouble comes up, is our first thing to do to pray or to panic, do we really believe that prayer and the Word of God are essential on a daily basis enough that it's like the breath that I, that I breathe, it's like the water that I drink, I need it so much that I'm in, it, in the Word and in prayer on a daily basis? Are you a type of person that believes in prayer so much that you pray and then you wait to see what the Lord will do as opposed to trying to fix it yourself? That's where it comes between believing and just saying. And Elijah was a believer. Elijah was a man of action, but he was a man who truly believed that God was real. He truly believed that he had been given, God, God had given him responsibilities and he needed to act upon them. He truly believed that God gave resources that were important. Now we've told you a little bit of the saga that when we were in Portugal we went two and a half days without water and electricity the way that that led up to it is we got to, we'll tell you more about it this evening with slides, but we get to Lisbon, we spend the first day after an all night flight in Lisbon, we're there, we leave Lisbon the next morning we travel back towards the camp where we're going to be staying the Rustic Camp that the Newtons, and many of you have been there, were headed that way. We get there towards the evening, and he starts the generator up so that we can have running water and we can have electricity. It runs for a little bit, but he, there was a message left that said the lights are starting to flicker. So right about the time that it got dark, the lights flickered and went out totally. And so he the, uh, Mark calls the missionary there, calls a friend of his over who had had worked on this generator, in fact, his company had to repair it. He comes out and he says, "The generator is shot. the motor's running, but it 's not generating anything and so it's okay, we 'll spend the first night without running water and without electricity, and the next morning we 'll go to church, and hopefully we can get to church early enough to get showers or wash up before church starts. That'd be a good thing after walking all day and touring all day and stinking all day. Now we get to church. We want to kind of freshen up. So the next morning we get to church and there we, we get freshened up and some ran to his apartment and freshened up and so we go through the church service. We went out with some of the Portuguese people for a lunch and that afternoon we were at the mall and he was getting groceries and he said, okay Pastor Wayne, you and I will go and we're going to replace the generator. So we go to a store that's several minutes away. The kids, you all stay here in the mall and you'll be okay. You know, don't over shop and we go to the generator store and we buy the generator. There's two of them there. One's really fancy looking and they say oh this one is our best model. Never have problems with this one. So we buy that generator. We roll it out of the store and the van won't open. The doors are all locked and the doors mechanism, I don't understand the van mechanism we cannot unlock the doors to get the generator in. We can't unlock the doors to get the kids in the van the whole electronic mechanism all of a sudden stopped working. So we have to roll the generator back into the store. We have to go to a, an area you know, over here, find a, a, an automobile shop that's open. We spend two hours there unable to get a hold of the kids because we don't have cell phones the numbers. And so the kids are in the mall shopping. My wife's there shopping. You had her credit card too. Oh, okay, I, I'm glad I didn't think about that until now. Um, so we get the we, we get the repair done after two hours. We go back to the store. They come out. They help us. We get the generator into the vehicle, and they sure this is going to work. This is going to work. We pick up the kids at the mall. We drive out to the camp. We unload the generator. We roll it into the area that it needs to be. It we you know it is so cool. The generator you don't have to have pull. You have, turn the key. It's an oh you know, wow. This is the top model. Don't even have to pull the cord. So he turned the key. They sold us one that the battery was shot. The battery is totally shot. You, you know what imprecatory prayers are? You call down cursing upon people. So Mark asked if I would jerry-rig the, the cable system to the tractor's battery so we could work that thing out. So we fooled with that in the dark for a couple hours. Got the thing. Tur- Vroom. Vroom. Mark, did you read the directions? Oh, wait. You have to add oil before you start it. We had the oil. So we put the oil in. Vroom. It ran at the most for 20 seconds. It wouldn't start. So we're going to bed without electricity, without baths or showers. But the next morning, Mark, my friend, you're taking it back. Well, maybe we can fi- you're taking it back because there's a warranty. So the next morning, he takes it. We load it back on the vehicle. He drives all the way to town. He gets to the place. He unloads it. Takes it into the store. They he tells him what the problem is. And the guy who's in charge of the department, as two guys are looking at it, walks up and says, "Ah, uh, did they turn the fuel line open?" "What do you mean?" the workers say. "Before you send them out, do you remember I told you you're supposed to reach up inside, way up there, and you're supposed to, when you sell these things, turn on the fuel line?" Oops, we forgot. It wasn't that the thing didn't have fuel. It wasn't that it didn't have oil. It was that the line had been turned off. So it couldn't work. I, I, is your fuel line to God shut? Are you praying? Are you reading? There's, there's in, in Portugal there's this bridge, 103 A.D. it's built by Trajan. Wonderful bridge. There's another one in, in this is Spain. In Spain it's in Segovia. It's an aqueduct that was built in like 107 A.D. And what happened is for centuries they were using this aqueduct But in 1890, they decided that, wait a minute, it's so old, let's preserve the aqueduct from use anymore. Let's just make it a site so that it'll survive for the next few generations for our kids to enjoy Roman architecture. And so they stopped using it, put in the water pipes. Within just a couple years, the aqueducts started to fall apart. They brought in experts who said, well, it's simple. Without using the aqueduct, there was no water running through, and the mortar was being kept semi moist so that it was in use. But once you stopped, the sun baked it by disuse, and it started to crumble quickly. How many of you feel a crumbling in your prayer life? You feel a crumbling in your spirit because you're not in the Word. You're not in prayer. You're not not where God can be using you because you have turned off the resources. Listen, friend, if we're going to be used by God, if we're going to make a difference, like in Elijah, we can't just sit passively by and let others do the ministry. We've got to believe that our Lord is actually alive and wanting to use us. We have to believe that this Lord has given us responsibilities and we need to act upon them using his word in prayer, doing what we can, and watch God use ordinary people like you and me in an extraordinary way. But we have to be dedicated. We have to be determined. We have to be fixed and focused. You've probably heard of General William Booth. He's not a military general. He started Salvation Army in his younger years, and he was serving the Lord, and serving the Lord, and serving the Lord, and wanting to serve the Lord, but then when he got in his latter years, they said his eyesight was having problems. He went to the doctors. His son comes to him with the doctor's report, and the conversation is recorded where he's talking to his son, and his son says to him, Dad, they gave me the report. The report is you're going to be blind within a few weeks. What do you mean I'm going blind? You're going to be totally blind. You mean I will never again see your face or the face of anyone in my family in this lifetime? That's what the doctor said, Dad. Mr. Booth paused for a moment, and then he made this statement. I have done what I could for God and for his people with my eyes. Now I shall do what I can for God without my eyes. He was dedicated. Are you...